on a pajama, rolled out of bed, and she went to the police station. Papa found out he began to shout and started the investigation. It was against the law. It was against the law. What your mama saw, it was against the law. Mama looked down and spit on the ground every time a name gets mentioned. Papa said, oh, if I got that boy, I'm going to stick him in the house of detention. But I know my way. I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way. I'm taking my time, but I don't know where. Goodbye, Rosie, the queen of Corona. See me and Julia down by the schoolyard. See me and Julia down by the schoolyard. Okay, finally got it to work. Didn't work at first. Hello, folks. The Queen of Corona, indeed. How have they not renamed that park? Corona Park, just sitting there in the middle of fucking Queens. And they never renamed the beer either. Another thing I can't kind of get my head around. But they both seem like that would have been a no-brainers. I guess you just don't want to uh, admit what's really happening. Corona Heights in San Francisco. There we go. I got to say, if someone says the new Snyder movie, very excited for the new uh, Zack Snyder zombie movie because uh, Dawn of the Dead is probably his best film. and. That opening sequence is really the best. It is the best. It's the closest any zombie movie has gotten to what I have always wanted in a zombie movie and never got, which is the actual moment, the 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 a dramatization of the moment when the zombie crisis hits uh, normality and disrupts it. And and there is an uh, they tried it in World the book World War Z does a great job of that. But uh, the movie has just one stupid, terrible scene where a bunch of guys are running around in Philadelphia. Otherwise, uh, very lame. But that opening sequence, when it's the fucking suburban Waukesha County uh, cul-de-sac just going to hell, it's, it's tasty. Of course, they couldn't sustain it because the rules of the game and also what's uh, cheap to film don't really allow for that kind of thing. But I'm looking forward to it. The fact that they digitally replaced Chris Delia with Tignataro like a year after the movie was made is pretty funny. Uh, so that'll be funny to see. And also, uh, I'm interested to see how they get the incredibly stupid premise of a bank heist during a zombie apocalypse. Because a lot of people say, what are you going to do with the money? My presumption is, is that it's a contained zombie situation. The zombies like took over Las Vegas, but there's also now like a return civilization. But you got to figure post zombie apocalypse that they would have at least, they would at least revalue the dinar, you know, put out some new sort of currency. Bitcoin, maybe. Okay. So one bit of business before I start what I want to talk about today. And that is that for next week, going to read the first three chapters of, uh, Kolb's Weimar Republic. I'm not sure. We might just read that and be done with it because it's, from what I understand, one of the best, uh, his best like capsule treatments of the German Revolution. So uh, we'll read that. 
and that'll, we'll, we'll go from there. I, I kind of have an idea that I want to read a Kim Stanley Robinson book because a lot of what I'm going to be talking about and what I've been focusing on in my mind lately is, is confronting the reality of living, trying to live and trying to articulate a political subjectivity at a time of full despair. And I do think that there is a way that despair can be grappled with and transcended. And I'm trying to help. I'm trying to do it for myself. And I'm finding like by the day I am able to do it, you know, and that's all it is. It's a, it's, it's never a, it is a project. All all life is that day to day project, that minute by minute project. It's not something that can be just uh, turned on and off like a light. It's a, it's a daily struggle, Uh, but you can struggle uh, easily or more difficultly, you know, you could be confronting the real thing or you can be dealing with some, uh, epiphenomenon of it that you then engage with instead and which will never allow you to get anything where, because you're never, you're not actually confronting anything. And so I wanted to maybe read something that, cause you know, the despair is why I was looking backward. The despair is why I'm looking at, you know, the civil war and the German revolution and thinking like, what could have gone differently? Where, where is another, where is that other world that we could be living in? Uh, but also, and, but that's not the only thing I want, I want to do with it because, you know, I still have, to, we all have to live now. Uh, so, uh, Kimberly Stanley Robinson has been doing a very interesting job in, in trying to do non doom based, non-capitalist fantasy science, uh, futurist fiction, which is very difficult because, as we'll talk about, the future now only belongs to the rich. The future has been privatized. The future are the only people who, the rich are the only people who get to imagine a future. Yes, Ministry of the Future is the one that I want to read. So we'll see about that after the Weimar thing. So if you're rich, you can imagine a future for your children. You can imagine giving them a world better than yours because you can convince yourself uh, the same way the mid-century modernists convince themselves about a middle-class uh, uh, future, they can imagine a boutique rich person future. And all the stuff that's going to happen to everybody else will be very unfortunate, but also un- unavoidable, inevitable, and not my problem at the end of the day. Nobody else gets to imagine a future. When we think of what's coming next, it's just a black hole. It's terror. And so that is one of the things that, depoliticizes uh, the mass of people. Because if you have no future that you can move towards realistically, uh, then what's the point of engaging anything? Why not, as we talked about last week, just try to solve in the shortest term possible my own selfish desires? Uh, It's the only smart move in in a futureless world. So confronting despair is about reclaiming the future in a lot of ways and, 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 and accepting a despair, but uh, accepting with it that you still exist and that you still have a beating heart and that something is driving it and to find what that is and move towards it. And we can all do that. Uh, but it means disengaging from a lot of the things that we have become addicted to that have uh, allowed us to to cope without actually directly addressing. And so I think Reading something that is unabashed in its willingness to imagine a, a human future, uh, even though that is cringe, because my God, how can anyone take it seriously? How can anybody take it seriously? 
We all know it's we're doomed. We all know that there's no fucking hope. Look at the fucking hockey stick. Look at who has the money. Look who has the fucking technology. Look who look who look what what kind of uh, social cohesion we have or or uh, class consciousness. That's terif- It's a terrifying prospect. The math doesn't hold up. But so everybody has to risk cringing. Everybody has to risk stepping off into the abyss and saying, "I'm going to believe that we can do this." And so. After we do this stuff with Weimar, I want to read uh, the uh, Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. So that's we'll be doing that one. Um, so to get to what I wanted to talk about today, though, and dealing with despair, uh, is the, in my mind, uncanny resonance between the current moment i wouldn't say decade because i think we're beyond the point where discrete decades at least maybe uh we're beyond decades or maybe they can only be understood in further retrospect than we have now whatever you want to call it this period i would say post 2008 uh whatever you want to call that it's now what it's now 12 years 13 years it's a long decade let's say is essentially the 1970s uh, being recapitulated in that it is an era of mass disillusionment from a, uh, an, a, an understood system. The 1970s was the decade when America, throughout in every walk of life, not just the hippies who got disillusioned by the failure of their movement, everybody from suburban reactionary homeowners to Haight-Ashbury burnouts – Everybody got the Ned Beatty speech. Everybody got the uh, the conversation with the man in the back of the room to tell them how things really were. Everybody got to eat a naked lunch in the 1970s because all of our illusions were no longer sustainable. Our economy, the, the, the Keynesian welfare state that we built was no longer sustainable. The uh, the social models we've created were collapsing. Uh, uh, our expectation of advancement of a future better than our present that that the, the fucking carrot on the stick of uh, in America's exceptionalism has been extinguished. It, we we uh, all of our institutions were proven to be uh, uh, criminal jokes. The media, uh, politicians, uh, you had Watergate, you had the church committee, you had, a, you had the hangover of Vietnam. Everyone understood. And then when you combine that with just bread and butter stuff, like the, the real beginning of deindustrialization and the massive strike wave, that's, that's like the very tail end of American labor militancy sort of burned off. Like the last excess energy the labor movement had burned off in a bunch of wildcat strikes in the 70s. Uh, sort of a mirror of the burst of strike activity uh, in the late 1940s that sort of set the stage for the – it was the birth of the modern business-oriented collaborationist post-war labor movement. And, it's, and it began with a bunch of wildcat strikes in the late 40s, 1948. And it ended with a bunch of wildcat strikes in the 1970s. And they mostly failed. So the labor movement failed. It was awash in corruption and it, uh, it's, it's, was not unable to meet the needs of its members. 
the institutions that deployed people were already moving jobs away, uh, uh, inflation and, uh, and unemployment coming together in a way that no economist thought was possible. And then the church, then the church committee and the revelation that, yeah, your government was spying on you and assassinating leaders and maybe killed the president. There was a House Committee on Assassinations in the 70s that found probable cause that Kennedy was killed as a part of a conspiracy. They put it at the foot of the mob, but nobody really believed that. And, of course, Watergate, the Precon presidency, the, the, this institution that had a genuine uh, investment in the notion of the presidency. People believed in the president in a, in a fundamental way. Now, of course, uh, Vietnam certainly started creating that crisis of uh, credibility, but what, and that, but then Nixon's entire behavior. And then finally, of course, in, in office. And then of course, Watergate just destroyed it. And so the systems failed. Uh, it couldn't, it, it was spiritually dead. It was corrupt and crooked. Uh, and it didn't even function anymore at providing material gains. And you had Jimmy Carter trying to, to put, put out a liberal sort of pious, pious, a uh, pious gloss on it, and a need for America to regain spiritual. Uh, uh, he demanded that Americans refine their non-materialist spirit at the very same moment that the credit card was being introduced in mass uh, numbers for the first time. The very first time that Americans were asked to fucking uh, take on debt instead of uh, save money. Oh, yeah, you got to stop being materialist, but also you need to start charging money you don't have in order to maintain the fucking consumer economy that we're replacing manufacturing with. So everything's broken down. Uh, Carter represents the very tail end of the liberal consensus when all of its bread and butter promises are gone and all that's left is its piety, is its smug morality. And of course, that's not sufficient to the moment. But what is, and I think, that, I mean, this should sound familiar. Like we are in that era, the Iraq, the fucking war on terror, the uh, uh, the economic collapse, uh, the presidency of Trump in every direct. Like if you're a liberal or 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 reactionary. The, the elections of just the, the presidential elections have essentially destroyed any lingering faith you had in the system. But what this moment of disillusionment is from, it's not, it's obviously not from the thing that was destroyed in the seventies because what happened in the seventies, and this is the distinction between the seventies and now, this is what make, this is the significant fundamental difference is that we were trapped in this, uh, this mire despair in the 70s. All of our systems don't work. We don't even trust ourselves anymore because we don't even know who we are. And then into this morass, into this moment where everybody has taken the red pill and pulled themselves out of the matrix and found out that they live in a mud puddle with no sun and they're tasked now to remake the world with no tools, Ronald Reagan shows up. And this is and presents to people on a chance to get back into the matrix. The Reagan, the Reagan response was, hey, guys, you know all this horrible stuff we know? Let's all forget about it. Let's all pretend that this didn't happen. And 
we're going to be able to give you your uh, your your consumer spending back, your confidence back, your uh, your sense of destiny and your sense of um, I, uh, your sense of self possession back because you're going to going to cut your taxes. We're going to this whole government model, this whole Keynesian model. We're throwing that out, and we're going to we're going to bet on you. And given the options, that's what people chose. That's it was right there, of course. Oh my God! What are we to try this instead? What if we say it's every man for himself? And if that's the case, I'm going to get ahead. We're going to get rid of the whole notion that there's any sort of social compact, and that will allow us to forget everything because all that stuff—that was the old—that was all the bad uh, accumulated gunk of of post-war liberalism. We can blow the fucking dirt off and start fresh. And then we have what's right about America, the good stuff. And so we built a new consumer-based economy based on that. Uh, but the thing is, is that it wasn't just Reagan offering this. Reagan offered it to this the 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 the, uh, the mass audience of like suburbanites who make up the center of gravity of American politics. That was the, his pitch. That was the pitch they got was from Reagan, and it sounded great. But everybody got a pitch. Like I've been reading recently about some of the early 70s like psychonaut guys like uh like Robert Anton Wilson and Terrence McKenna, all those like uh psychedelic dudes who hit the fucking hard edge of the failure of the 60s. Uh and their faith in the ability of like the individuated uh uh consciousness of people to come together to overthrow evil because remember uh, the American like counterculture was broadly libertarian because it was middle class. It rebelled against the status quo because it restrained the individual. That's one of the big reasons it was unable to be politically effective. So the 70s saw this crisis along every axis, not just at middle America, but among the most advanced progressive elements who did not have any connection to a class project or a class consciousness. They had a desire to transcend. The, they wanted to skip over class because it's too hard. It's too tough in America and because we're too isolated from it and because it threatens our autonomy. And we really do. We really do value our autonomy. America throughout, even our left throughout America has been wildly, uh, uh, suffused with our basic uh, ideological understanding of freedom. I mean, how could it not be? Where else is it coming from? It's generated by our culture and our and, and even our even at its most powerful, our our working class political consciousness was enmeshed with it as well. So the dream, after the failure of the people to organize in the '60s, became well, we will get over the bump of organizing by literally just expanding consciousness. Like uh, uh, John Lilly and fucking uh, Timothy Leary, all of these dudes were like, we're just going to use our brains to like fix the sequence, get a frequency that overwhelms everything, all of our structural impediments. And of course, this is very non-dialectical and it's very non-Marxist, but that's because this is what they had. And this is what they had, their brains were by then. Uh, and... Even they got a deal in this in the eighties. Even they got an, an opening. 
that allowed them to move forward out of despair. And it was networking, cybernetics, and the internet. The California ideology. The California ideology was the, was the defeated counterculture on the West Coast trying to get around the question of politics by creating a technological infrastructure of communication that would lead to a raising of consciousness that would literally allow us to evolve beyond the needs for these institutions that are imprisoning us. And those guys all, a lot of them ended up working with early internet uh, pioneers and and early uh, computer research. And there was a huge uh, overlap in, 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 computer science and that like psychedelic uh, 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 ideology. And here we are now after having the internet around for 40 years. Here we are now where no one can promise what Reagan promised. We can only blame others for the doom. That part he was good at, but he was also good at sketching an alternative. No one can believe in that because the neoliberal state that Reagan built and that that people uh, invested belief in and that they reconstructed uh, uh, and reinvested their belief in institutions like media and government around has now failed the same way that the post-war Keynesian consensus failed in the 70s. It has now failed as as comprehensively and even more dramatically because the 70s really was this weird like frog in a pot thing. This was a collapse and then a remaking of the economy in the aftermath of the collapse that destroyed the last lingering uh, public investment in in America's like economy, home ownership. And so now you can't believe in any political alternative that's going to wipe the slate clean like Reagan promised to and give us a new thing to believe in and gives us a chance to forget. We can't forget. And then even at the margins, you cannot hope for some sort of uh, technological spiritual transformation because we know what that leads to. The California ideology led to the creation of the single most effective communicator of, uh, of a demiurgical uh, superstructural mind prison you could imagine. This, without even having to use the little nanobots, they, they essentially put a fucking panopticon in our own minds, forgetting what, what any kind of uh, actual surveillance technology we now are subject to, which is comprehensive. We have, what, we have the panopticon in our mind now. So we can't even believe in that. So we have to believe in something else. And it can't be the self because all of these things are premised on the self. And our crisis now is that we can no longer reconcile our self as we understand it with the world we're living in. And that means we have to change our perceptions of the self. And that is the hope we must fixate on and the hope that exists and cannot be denied is that that despair 
is premised on an understanding of ourselves that is that assumes as inviable this uh, this transactional relationship we have with uh, our each other and the very fabric of reality. This this isolated this isolation that we operate from the, the premise of because it's in that context that all that disillusionment of the seventies only led to reaction because we were disillusioned but we were not reillusioned. We not we were not reillusioned around the necessity for uh, our collaborative action. We were in fact only reaffirmed in the futility of collaborative action. But now there's no there's no re- there's no vent. There is no promise that can be made plausibly, and that means we're going to have to, just out of sheer survival instinct, going to have to change. Because even our most selfish, instinctive desires are now in conflict with our ability to sustain ourselves in this time, and so. Without any more, without any dream of of of, of uh, transcendence, without any fantasy of 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 uh, reorientation of the economy coming from the structures we have, we will all, on our own timelines, be forced with a a final confrontation with the box with no fucking the 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 the, the uh, windowless room. We're going to find ourselves with no escape. And then we're going to have to make one instead of taking the one that's offered us instead of going where they, where they hurt us. We're going to have to fucking start bashing on the walls ourselves and cutting fucking holes in where we see fit. I do not understand cybernetics. Excuse me, sir. I don't know anything about computers. I am saying one thing I, there's one thing I know about computers and it is that the promise of computers in the seventies, uh, has led to a reality that is the diametrical opposite of everything that the people who put them together claimed, I think even to themselves, they were doing. Somebody asked what Disco Demolition Night is, and I got to say, surprise uh, that, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be. You guys are all kids. I don't remember this, but it's a, one of those historical uh, curios I really like. So, uh, in I believe it was what night? What year was it? What year was it? I don't the specific year. It was 1979. It was July 12th, 1979. Uh, there was a doubleheader at uh, Comiskey Park in Chicago, and as a promotion to get people in. They had a local radio DJ from the north suburbs who was making a name for himself as a fervent hater of disco. He would talk about how much disco sucked. He would he would uh, make fun of it all the time on his show, and, and he was holding the standard for rock. And of course, people talk about how that is uh, you know that's all a reactionary like white supremacist uh, uh, instinct. It's a revulsion at like the queer blackness of disco. Uh, and it's like an expression of that. Probably do a degree. I don't know. Uh, but so they, one way or another, they decided that they could get people into the stadium by 
having this dude uh, run a promotion where if you, you could get in either discounted or for free if you brought a disco record with you to the sh- to the first game. And then at the moment between the games, they were going to take all those co- uh, uh, albums that had been collected put them in a big pile in the middle of the outfield and run them over with a, um, like a bulldozer. I think like blow them up. They, they used explosives and they did it. And it was, uh, not a good idea. It was, it was a mistake, uh, because for the first of all, everybody who came was essentially, uh, insane like they were all shit-faced before they got there they were all wild as hell and then once the fucking bombs started going off everyone just lost their shit and you had this explosion of of uh of just libidinal energy you just you you could just see how how if you get people together uh and you simmer the crock pot the right way it could just pop off and so they ended up having to Cancel the second game and the, the White Sox forfeited because they couldn't take control of the fucking stadium. Nickel, uh, 10 cent beer night was in Cleveland. That's another good one. That one, everyone got so shit faced that they had to, uh, the Indians had to forfeit the second game in the doubleheader because fans jumped on the field and tried to fight the Royals outfielders or the Rangers outfielders. Oh man, someone wants me to talk about the Loco Focos. The Loco Focos, great name, one of the best names for a political faction in the American history. The 19th century really did have all the best political faction names. You had the Loco Focos, you had the Hunkers and the Barn Burners, you had the Mugwumps, you had the Half Breeds and the Stalwarts, all very good. Uh, so the Loco Focos were a faction of the New York City Democratic Party that was a self-consciously working-class arrangement. They were they uh, had been they were named that because there had been a, a meeting of, of Democrats in New York, uh, and there had been a dispute uh, between the 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 workies, as they were called, the labor the laborers uh, who made up the part of the party, and the regular Democrats, and the the workies uh, went into their own hall to uh, have a, a meeting and the lights were turned off. Like the, the, the candles were blown out <laughs> by a, uh, by the regulars. And then to light the room, the, the workers pulled out these self lighting cigars that were popular at the time. You'd like pull them out of the tube and there'd be an internal uh, match and it would light the thing. And so they, pulled out their loco focos and they held them up to get the light going. And that's what they were called. And they were the first real self aware, uh, working class formation within the democratic party. Uh, but the thing is, is that they didn't really have any significant effect on 
or influence of the party because they were so it was so protean and the issues that there was still such a, uh, a, a unformed conception of like what working class interests were at that time, because there were relatively few uh, urban laborers in the country at that point. Uh, And it is one of the, one of the things that contributed to America's relative reactionary uh, politics, relatively reactionary politics and, and la- failure for any labor party to sustain itself is that uh, America, because of its ability to to uh, trade land for discontent, uh, was able to create mass democracy earlier than Europe was. So that by the time you saw mass working class politics emerge in the late 1800s, uh, it ended up being funneled into the Democratic Party. Whereas in Europe, there had been no mass politics before that point, which meant that the parties that were emerged were self-consciously oriented around and dominated by uh, the workers. Whereas even at the height of their influence uh, within the Democratic Party, uh, like the working class as such was always one element of a coalition uh, and was never the director of a party. And the local focos were the first little burst of, uh, of working class uh, energy around um, the Democratic Party. The Loco Focos. And uh, one of the big Loco Foco uh, demands was at this time, which was dominated by banking as the main domestic issue, as the main political terrain of argument. Uh, it was banking, and there was a question of whether you're going to have, uh, where you're going to have a a national bank like the Whigs wanted, or you're going to have uh, a system of pet regional banks, uh, or then later an independent treasury like the Democrats wanted. All the way to, in one way or another, uh, keep the reality of the state's role in uh, creating currency away from politics. Which people thought, even at the uh, even regular Americans thought was freedom. They thought that an independent treasury was somehow possible and would protect their liberty. And uh, sure, shit didn't end up happening. Hmm. But there were a bunch of questions one about how are we going to charter banks? How many banks are going to be allowed to operate? Who is going to decide who who allows a bank? To be chartered because one of the big complaints about the uh, early nineteenth century banking system is that banks were banks needed to be chartered by states, and those charters were often given to friends of politically influential people, as you would imagine. Uh, there's a reason that the Jacksonian network of banks were called pet banks because they were all parts of the uh, patronage networks around the the Democratic Party where the banks existed. And those banks were the sole distributor of uh, paper currency in the country because there was no national currency at this point. We had gold as the standard, but there was no national gold-backed currency. Banks would have a certain reserve of gold that they could then lend paper currency out on, essentially. And that is what created the amount, the, uh, amount of currency that, that – 
facilitated economic activity. Uh, and that so the battle over the banks really was this battle over where uh, who would decide what where money is and how and and uh, and how much money there would be. Uh, but the problem is, from the point of view of, of working class politics, uh, the actual answer of the state determines it. We should do it collectively, and we should do it uh, democratically. Was not conceivable. Uh, the 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 working men of America, the laborers, believed that the greatest freedom was in the greatest abstraction away from politics of the money supply, which is mystification. But the closest thing that existed and which the local focos insisted upon uh, was an idea for free banking. And that meant anybody could charter a bank regardless of uh, their relationship with the state. They didn't need to get a charter. They could Enough people could get together and then they could declare a bank to exist. Uh, and uh, this was very popular at the high end of the Democratic Party in its elites because if a lot of... Uh, Powerful people could then get more bank access to uh, to credit to create banks uh, because they could access this new system without having to go through the uh, the checks, having to make the right negotiate uh, the right deals, and having to deal with the uh, like the quotas on banks that were allowed to be chartered. And so the local focos thought that the best thing for the working man was to allow everybody to have a fucking bank. And that was like a primitive attempt to articulate a, a social uh, economy, but just too early. Favorite Elroy novel character. I will always love American Tabloid because it's the first one I read and it blew my mind. Uh, and obviously all of his characters are archetypes. So you're really just asking when you're saying which favorite character, which is your favorite expression of which is one of your favorite Elroy archetypes? Because you've got the uh, the violent but secretly sensitive bruiser, your Bud White, your Pete Bondurant. You've got your uh, uh, your smooth operator who's slowly coming across, coming uh, apart at the seams, like Jack Vincennes and Kemper Boyd. And then you've got your uh, cowardly nerd who is addicted to his own self-righteousness but is too weak to pursue his own uh, values, like Ward Little or uh, Ed Exley. And I have said before that uh, if you had the BuzzFeed, if there was a BuzzFeed quiz, are you Kemper, uh, Pete, or Ward from American Tabloid, uh, everybody who is on Twitter would, including myself, would get Ward. So. Although I think Pete Bondurant is a huge, uh, just an absolute pimp, and I think he's cool. 
Uh, so just from that perspective, my favorite character of his in Cool Points is Pete Bondurant. Uh, the one that I relate to the most is, of course, Ward Little. <laughs> I love the idea that he made him just a, a fucking Canuck, that he made him a Quebecois. No need. A seven-foot-tall Canuck snapping people's necks. Yeah, definitely. American Tabloid is a great place to start because it's the first book in a trilogy, there's no other uh, stuff that you need to know beforehand. But if you do read them all, uh, and then you want to read the L.A. Quartet, don't do what I did. I very because I didn't really know enough about him. I just went to the library and started reading uh, after I read all his other stuff. Uh, is that I read White Jazz before I read any of the other L.A. Quartet, and that was a mistake. Because it really is a cool culmination of a bunch of stuff in LA Confidential that didn't hit the way that it would have if I had uh, read at least LA Confidential first. So, for the love of God, read LA Confidential before White Jazz. There's a somebody says they only read American Tabloid. My God, yes, The Cold Six Thousand and Bloods Are Over. A lot of people don't like Bloods Are Over because it is very different than his other stuff. It's more contemplative and romantic, but I think that as the culmination of that project, it's really fitting, especially since The Cold 6000 is so brutally alienating. The Cold 6000, in part because it's so big and it has so much plot in it, I mean, it's got the, like, uh, American Tabloid is about the lead up to the Kennedy assassination. Uh, Cold 6000 features the RFK and... uh, Kennedy assassinations in it and uh, has a whole bunch more characters and stuff. So in order to accommodate that, he essentially just brushed that thing down to every sentence doing just object verb. uh, As as few as words as possible. And so it's very, it's almost, it's, it's avant-garde in it's terseness. Uh, So it's a, it's a very, it's a whiplash, but it's very, uh, it's fun. We might get a stagflation again. Who knows? I mean, I didn't want to get into this too much because I don't want to get all like, I don't speculate. I try not to speculate anymore because that's what really got me wound up in the lead up to the election. And then all the stuff after that is having to have an argument, a take that I could really feel like I understood and and felt confidence in about the future. Uh, So that's why I've been sticking with, history but uh we have reached the point now after 2008 where all of the illusions that used to shroud our uh system our our political economy are now gone one of the big reasons that the 2008 collapse happened 
was that after there were the first few bucklings within the institutions uh, of Wall Street, uh, the first uh, instinct of the powers that be was to not intervene with government money. And that's where that's why Bear Stearns collapsed. That's what started the whole thing to go, the dominoes to fall. And I think we're now at a point where, and I think we saw this with the CARE Act last year, which was just this massive liquidity dump that was on par with what happened in 2008 without any kind of oversight or discussion about it, is that we'll never get another situation where there is any hesitation to just flood the chamber with money because the day, I think the reason that there was any kind of um, fiscal discipline was the worry that, well, if this happens, what if the, the good money flows somewhere else? What if, what if the, 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 the circulation is, is interrupted? And I feel like this current moment right now where you're seeing these insane escalations of bubbles in every segment of the economy, the creation of new fake simulated things to have bubbles about, like NFTs and, and crypto, uh, is proof that everyone at every level of control of this structure knows that there is nowhere else for the money to go, that, that the, the American dollar and, and its surrounding uh, uh, investment pools, it, 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 the American state basically, is the only place to, for the money to go. It's, it's the hole at the end of the, of the uh, it's the hole at the end of the gutter. It's all getting sucked down. So they'll just keep inflating. Everything just has to keep inflating. What's going to pop it? What pops every other bubble was when the money stops coming in, right? In the 19th century, what would happen is, is that you'd have a big speculative bubble around land, like in the 1830s, or about railroads in the 1870s, and then the Europeans would uh, decide to bring back some of their specie or invest somewhere else, and then boom, boom, you'd have a giant collapse. There's nowhere else for the money to go. Where else is the money supposed to go? People talk about uh, the end of America's reserve currency status, and that would be game over if that happened. But there's nowhere else currently up to the task. So how the fuck does this thing sustain itself? It seems like it shouldn't, but also it keeps doing it, and there isn't any alternative. And no one at the top seems that worried about it. But that's the thing. If you're at the top of this system, even if you knew for a fact that all these books are cooked and the end is going to, and this economic structure is going to break down, the supply chain itself is going to break down in the near future, you wouldn't behave any differently than they would, than they are right now. Because why the hell would you want to spook the horses, especially when you have already made it so that you know if that does happen, you'll be fine. Internet advertising, thank you. The data is worth nothing. This is a perfect example. So that's a bubble that should pop at some point, right? The data dollar in, in the Silicon Valley, because we know now pretty definitively that none of that data is worth anything. None of those clicks 
are worth anything, in, included in terms of adding value to the companies that pay for them. But it doesn't matter if everybody knows that. If every single person involved in all of these transactions is aware of that, their incentive is still to do it because it's what keeps the fucking the, the uh, tech, tech economy going. It's the only dynamic sector. So we're in a situation where it will continue to go until it collapses because all of the incentives of everyone in a position of power are to keep it going because they don't have to actually risk anything. Because you could say, oh, no, wouldn't that hurt their their investments and stuff? Well, yeah, but they would not be like it would put them in actual danger of, of losing their position. I mean, if we're not, yeah, oh, they might move their, they might lose their, their uh, money, but they won't lose their position. They will have created their own technological bubbles that will allow them to sustain themselves in any eventuality. And if that's the case, if you've got that backstop, then why wouldn't you just keep going through the motions until it bucks up? The only question is, when is it, when does it pop? And the thing that keeps fucking with me is, how is it going to pop? Where will the interruption in flow go? Have we created a, a, a global system that is now self, it's like fluid karma from uh, Southland Tales? And it just, it, the, the, the very motion itself pulls it forward? It's fucking wild. And yeah, it's like, obviously, eventually climate change will pop it just in terms of interrupting the resource flow. And then that's the end. That's that. That's the wheels will come right off. But that is not going to be a that is not going to be a dramatic thing is the thing. The climate change effects for the foreseeable future are going to be uh, they're going to be metabolized by the system. Like, uh, disasters cost money, but they also provide speculative investment opportunities. Disaster capitalism always has its, uh, its creative destructive potential in every, uh, failing in, or in every, in every emergent crisis. As long as there is a, 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 uh, a, a, some sort of equilibrium that can be maintained, it will be. What will happen is that the edges will continue to be, uh, eaten away the edges of what is considered the market what is considered the political sphere will, will be eaten away there's a story a horrifying story about that i read about how uh people in northern california whose homes were burned down during the big campfire there last year uh are still homeless and are now being rousted out of the places that they have uh set up camp by the police. So these are people who, until a year ago, were solid citizens, taxpayers who were on the inside of the citizenship bubble, people who deserved, people who, who were part of us, who deserved some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, basic human dignity and, and access to redress. Their house gets burned down by a fire. They can't, get enough, they can't just build another one. They're out of the club. They're now out there homo saucer. 
bunch of people in southern Louisiana are have been that way since that last big uh, uh, hurricane. And I think the the dream of the of the big collapse is the dream where collapse comes fast and hard, and with it, at least a glimpse of freedom, at least a glimpse of the ability to uh, a chance to remake your relationship to your world because all of the restrictions and restraints and demands of life have changed. You get to get closer to the vitality and you get to fight for yourself and others because the alternative is one where you just go from being totally under the command of the system, but also within, uh, a pocket of rights and, and, and expectations of of, uh, of rights to being outside of that, but still under the d- control of systemic power. The, st- the thing stays there. It's just the wall moves and you're on the other side of the wall now. But you're still in the sight line of the fucking cyclopedian panopticon tech drone state. Only now you don't have to, now you're not being compelled by credit card debt and medical billing. You're being compelled by a fucking, uh, like in a drone hovering over your head, telling you to move on. So this is why I said, why I want to read something that confronts this this moment and imagines a way out because we all have to imagine a way out for ourselves, if not for the world. And I don't mean transcending the problems. I mean, transcending our soul sickness at the scale of the problems, transcending our paralysis in the face of the problems. Numbers are out here. Weird. Let me check this. All right, I'm going to wrap up here in a minute. Maybe answer a couple questions. Yes, we need Marianne Williamson. No, Marianne Williamson and uh, and Jesse Ventura. That's what we need. No, that's 
I think we're past politics, honestly. Man, like it feels like everything is really simmering though. Like Israel, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of that's intense. And then Colombia, I mean it's it's been just one rolling uh uh a crisis everywhere. And even obviously here last summer, but it still ha- but it still has this this horrible stasis to it it's the it's it i think the thing that is so alienating and terrifying and 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 bewildering about the moment is that everything feels fully liquefied but also totally overdetermined and i feel like that's the 70s too like oh my god nothing is working every every structure uh is leading us towards oblivion and yet None of them seem to actually be losing their power over us. And so that really gives you the sensation of being locked in a in a car, in an airplane where the pilot has jumped out and you're on course to hit a fucking mountain. And then you just have to spend your time trying to come to terms with what's going to come. Unless you figure out a way to get in the goddamn cockpit and get a goddamn one of the things and call someone at uh, at air traffic control and, and talk your way out of it. Yeah, I saw the fucking Ned Lamont. God, what a name! A blast from the past. The guy who was like the Netflix, the Netflix, the Netroots candidate who was gonna uh, who beat Joe Lieberman for the Senate uh, seat in Connecticut. And then was beaten by Joe Lieberman when Joe Lieberman ran on a third party, like independent Joe Lieberman party ticket with mo- the support of, 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 I think, a majority of Demo- Republicans in Connecticut ended up voting for him, which is how he got back in. And then Ned Lamont ended up running for uh, governor, uh, what, a year or two ago. And now he's Grover Clevelanding it, throwing out the National Guard to. Uh, to stop a nursing home strike. It is interesting. There's a lot of people who have theories about the care economy being the care economy being the next real uh, main front of the labor of the the uh, the labor movement and 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 uh, and workers' struggle. I mean, we'll see. This is a good if, if it gets stamped out by this fucking geek. This easily, we'll see. Who knows? Don't know yet. 
I'm imagining just like the 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 the, co- the troops from like the crazies just coming into a nursing home with their fucking M16s and stealing people's uh, medicine, just getting robo tripping in the in the uh, in the infirmary. I don't actually know what robo-tripping is. Is that about taking Robitussin? I don't know. Holding your breath? It would be really funny if Biden just cured cancer, though, in the middle of all this. Like Biden just comes out and goes, guys, cancer's done. If it was a, what was it? What if it was a vaccine though? What if there, what if there was a cancer cure? All cancers cured. Obviously this is impossible. I'm saying what if cancer's cured, but it's a vaccine. I kind of think a lot of anti-vaxxers would, would cave just because how scary cancer is. Cuba has a lung cancer vaccine, but once again, it's for like specific types. Like there is no overall cancer cure. Although, I don't know. I got to think that there has to be some genetic thing you could do, some switch you could turn off. Yeah, what if you just injected yourself with like shark shark sperm or something? Those guys don't get cancer. I if I learned anything from deep blue sea, it's that uh sharks don't get cancer or uh Alzheimer's. Should you rewatch Deep Blue Sea? Always. It's classic for a reason. Okay, folks. Talk to you probably on Friday. And then next Wednesday, we'll uh, talk about the first three chapters of the cool book. Just be wrapping up about the, uh, the, the many bungles of the, of the SDP and, uh, and Frederick Ebert, who we all got to give two big thumbs down to. All right. Bye-bye.